everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today I'm going to give you two updates on Supreme Court-related news. But before we get there, two super newsy updates, I think, on other things you might be wondering about. The first update is about the subpoena that the January 6th committee issued to President Trump for documents. Now, he was supposed to turn documents in a few days ago, last Friday. He failed to do so, but apparently his attorneys are actually talking to the committee because they've said, we'll give him a few more days to respond. I would be really shocked if the former president actually does respond and turns over documents, at which point the committee really has a question. Do they want to refer this to the Department of Justice for a criminal trial the way they did when Steve Bannon refused to comply with the subpoena? Uh, Do they want to try and go to court and order Trump to testify and to provide documents In the end, I think what they probably know is that they don't have time for any of that because of the electoral calendar. They know that this committee is going to dissolve in December. And so what remains to be seen is whether or not they'll just try and take any documents they can get and know that the Department of Justice is frankly already conducting a parallel investigation and that hopefully the Department of Justice will get what it needs. The other deadline to look at in this particular situation is that the January 6th committee has said by November 14th, we want the testimony from the former president. So November 5th was the deadline for documents. They've said you can have a few more days. November 14th is the deadline for testimony. Again, I just can't imagine a situation in which the former president actually walks in to Congress and testifies or even does a videotape deposition. But obviously, we can't rule anything out, and we'll keep you updated on that. The other update before we get to the meat of today is that the Supreme Court basically declined to save Lindsey Graham. So Senator Lindsey Graham submitted an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court. He pled with them and said, I should not have to testify before a Fulton County grand jury in Georgia's investigation into election interference. And basically what he said is there's a portion of the Constitution called the Speech and Debate Clause, and it very, very broadly says that in some circumstances, senators and members of Congress cannot be compelled to testify when what they would be asked about would be their legislative activities. The punchline here is that the courts very rightly said You can be asked about a whole lot of things, including the phone calls that you made to officials in Georgia after the election and answer questions about those phone calls. And that doesn't have anything to do with your legislative activities. So the next step in this case, I really don't think Lindsey Graham has anywhere else to go. I do think that he'll need to testify. Now, of course, he could always invoke the Fifth Amendment. So we'll have more for you when there is more to tell you. Now, let's get to our main topics today. First, I want to talk about newly released emails that show that after the 2020 election, Trump's legal team thought that their path to victory ran through Justice Clarence Thomas. And as it turns out, they were wrong. Second, I want to talk to you about a new book that shed some light on whether Justice Samuel Alito was honest at all when he answered questions about whether he was prepared to overturn Roe v. Wade. 
many years ago when he was a nominee to the court. Now, if you'd like to learn more about these topics, shameless plug, I have written MSNBC columns on both of these issues. Okay, so let's get started. First, John Eastman, Clarence Thomas, and Trump. That's our first topic of the day. Now, we always knew that former President Trump's post-2020 election legal strategy really always was a Hail Mary pass. But there's new emails from the Trump's legal team that show that they were really just hoping to make this desperate attempt to stall certification of the 2020 election that would somehow, they were hoping, connect with Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, meaning they thought their path to victory was through Clarence Thomas. Here's the bottom line for me. It's fair to blame Trump and his legal team for abusing the court system, for peddling a false narrative that the 2020 election was stolen. But it's not fair to blame Thomas for what the Trump team hoped that they could convince him to do, but he never did. You can disagree with Clarence Thomas's rulings. You can disagree with his legal philosophy. But in this case, just because the Trump team thought that he would basically do them a solid, that he would help them out, it's not fair to say that we should blame Trump for that. So there are perhaps two ways to view Trump's view of Justice Thomas as, quote, key to their plan. Under one view, Trump's team, which included John Eastman, you may remember him, an attorney who served as Justice Thomas's law clerk and knows the justice and his wife very well. Under one view, Eastman saw some willingness in the justice to go outside of the law and basically help throw the election to Trump. Now, John Eastman specifically expressed support for the idea that challenging the election result in Georgia and then appealing their really inevitable defeat to Justice Thomas could stall or halt the certification of election results. Now, why Justice Thomas? Because each Supreme Court justice covers emergency appeals from one of the 13 federal appellate courts. And Thomas is the one who receives emergency appeals that arise from the 11th Circuit. Which state is in the 11th Circuit? Georgia. So basically, if there was litigation in Georgia and there's an emergency appeal to the Supreme Court, everybody knows it's going to Thomas first. But it's not just... Georgia litigation that they thought, Trump's legal team thought, that Thomas could help them with. According to testimony, the former vice president, Mike Pence, was counseled by John Eastman, who basically tried to pressure him to violate his constitutional duties and refuse to certify the Electoral College results on January 6, 2021. Eastman apparently thought that if that issue made its way to the Supreme Court, that Thomas would be supportive of efforts to, again, go outside of the Constitution and throw the presidential election. Now, just a little bit more background, or for me, a little bit more legal gossip. Why is John Eastman so familiar to us? We've talked about him in prior episodes. A federal judge in California concluded in March that Trump and John Eastman, quote, launched a campaign to overturn a Democratic election, an action unprecedented in American history. A few months later, that same judge found that communications between Trump and John Eastman 
were made in furtherance of illegal conduct. So here are two more interesting tidbits about John Eastman. As I said, one is that he served as a law clerk for Justice Thomas. That was in the 1990s. But he's also communicated with Thomas's wife, conservative activist Ginny Thomas, shortly before January 6, 2021. Ginny Thomas, of course, herself has been involved in efforts to overturn the 2020 election and continues to say that that was a stolen election. So here we have John Eastman, who is providing legal advice to the former president and the former vice president. He's well acquainted with both Justice Thomas and Ginny Thomas, and he somehow thinks that Thomas would be amenable to an appeal from Georgia and or be amenable to their really strange view that the vice president has more power than he does when he has to certify election results. Again, that happened on January 6, 2021. So that's one view here is that John Eastman basically knows more than we do about Justice Thomas. But I think the more compelling view here is that Trump's legal team was just so fundamentally divorced from reality that they were just in some sort of fever dream. And they thought the most conservative justice on the court would basically aid and abet them in this, again, unconstitutional plan to steal the election. But we know that didn't happen. None of the members of the Supreme Court stepped in to take the bait when it came to Trump's many post-election lawsuits. Um, Trump's legal strategy was really a resounding failure. Now, the thing for us to watch, I think, is that the next person who uses Trump's playbook to try and overturn the election results could be just much better at calling the shots. So for now, the judiciary, including Justice Thomas, held. But what we need to watch for is what happens next time when the person is smarter than Trump and has better legal counsel than John Eastman provided. I know that's an ominous note, but let's move on to our second big topic today, which is Sam Alito and Roe v. Wade. Now, this is some other news that broke this week. When Alito was a nominee to the high court, understandably, Democrats like the late Senator Ted Kennedy, a Massachusetts Democrat, feared that Sam Alito would overturn Roe v. Wade if he was confirmed to the court. Now, the news is, according to a new book entitled Ted Kennedy, A Life, now Justice Sam Alito told Kennedy in 2005 that he firmly believed in a constitutional right to privacy. Now, why does that right to privacy matter? If you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know the answer, which is that the right to privacy provided the foundation for Roe's protection of abortion. And Alito says there's a constitutional right to privacy and it's, quote, settled, according to Kennedy's notes. He also tried to assure Kennedy I am a believer in precedent. That's all a way of trying to telegraph, I will uphold Roe v. Wade. Now, Kennedy really wasn't buying what Alito was selling. He didn't vote for Alito's confirmation. And as it turns out, that was probably wise. Alito finally got enough conservative colleagues to join him in what we now understand to be, frankly, I think, a crusade to overturn Roe. And he was the one, of course, to author this June's decision in Dobbs v. Jackson, which 
overturned Roe v. Wade. And he famously wrote in that decision that Roe was, quote, egregiously wrong from the start. Now, that doesn't sound like somebody who really, at least in this area, believes in precedent or that Roe was settled law or that it is really unquestionable that there's a constitutional right to privacy. Now, the reason that this particular book excerpt made a lot of news last week is that just a day after the details of that meeting between Kennedy and Alito became public, Alito spoke at the Conservative Heritage Foundation. Now, somebody asked him about the fact that the Dobbs decision was leaked in early May. And Alito said this was an egregious breach of secrecy, which I agree with. And he said it made his conservative colleagues, quote, targets for assassination. Let's state the obvious, which is nobody should ever, ever try and kill anybody, including a Supreme Court justice. And it's also fair to critique what justices say and to hold them to a higher standard. And the fact is that someone who wrote a judicial decision that very concretely puts people in danger, he quite literally has put the lives of thousands of women at risk each year. I just wish he had been more circumspect about the words he used and the way he painted himself, frankly, I think, as the victim here. Alito must know the consequences of the Dobbs decision. He must know that the consequence here is that teenagers who are raped can be forced to give birth. He must know that women who are carrying dead or dying fetuses are risking serious medical complications because doctors can't perform the procedures that would keep these women safe. He must know that the decision means that states can prevent cancer patients from obtaining abortions. And he must know that this will disproportionately affect poor women and minorities. None of this is to say that anybody should threaten the Supreme Court justices. They absolutely should not. I just wish he had been more careful in answering that question. I wish that somewhere the justices would acknowledge that there are very real-world, concrete, practical consequences to their decisions. And obviously, in this case, the consequences are huge. Alito here has not acknowledged those consequences in my mind, and I think what we also now know is he apparently broke his assurances to Kennedy. Alito also talked in this particular speech about the crisis of the legitimacy that the Supreme Court faces. He put this, he phrased this as people simply disagreeing with his rulings. I'm going to offer that it's the hypocrisy and it's the lack of acknowledgement, again, of the consequences to real people who have real lives and face real risks and dangers. So those are the two big things that I wanted to update you on. Again, kind of Supreme Court related. Obviously, it's midterm election season and we're going to be switching gears a little bit to bring you more political news. And um, there certainly will be a lot of it over the next week or so. So I hope this gave you a good update on some of the big legal stories of the week. Again, please subscribe, rate, and review. Please ask me anything on Facebook, Twitter for as long as we all stay on it, Instagram, TikTok. I'm now on Mastodon. We'll see how long that lasts. And we wish everybody a great day.